This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. 4.6 billion. The Earth forms. Cambrian. 542 million. Complex life explodes. Permian Triassic. 251 million. 90% of species die. Cretaceous tertiary. 65 million. Meteor kills the dinosaurs. 55 million. Primates appear. 2.3 million. Pleistocene. 200,000. Humans. 20,000. Agricultural. 250. Industrial revolution. Six Great acceleration. The Anthropocene. Welcome to Generation Anthropocene. I'm Leslie Chang. Today on the show, we're featuring a conversation that our producer Jackson Roach had with Camille Dungy of Colorado State University. Camille is a poet and a professor of creative writing. In 2009, she edited an anthology titled Black Nature, Four Centuries of African-American Nature Poetry. In this interview, she discusses how racial history can deeply influence our relationship to the natural world. Jackson spoke to Camille via Skype a few months ago. Here is their conversation. I think you, you mentioned at the beginning of the, the anthology that there was a, a particular tree uh, growing yeah. through the filtration system of an abandoned swimming pool. And I'm wondering if you could tell me that story of, of how you started to think about the natural world in your art. So the story of the tree is that there was a park very near my home and I would walk around the park. It's just like perfect keep you sane distance right? <laughs> for a morning, for a morning ambulation, like just three miles. It's not, it's like, doesn't take too long. It's like just enough to keep you, your head balanced every morning. And so that was my, my typical path, but it would take me by some crazy things like Stonewall Jackson's the packet boat that took his dead body to its final burial place. Like Whoa. that was in this park. <laughs> like, sort of just rotting away with this like plaque next to it. And I would walk by it every day, a little Stonewall Jackson's final resting place, essentially. And then this pool, which wasn't a pool, it was all filled in um, with grass. And and there was this beautiful tree, a box elder tree growing out of the the works, as you said. And it took me some time to learn that a group of activists in Lynchburg, Virginia, staged a swim-in at the city pool saying, you know, I think black people should be allowed to swim in city pools. And the city was like, yeah, no, we don't think so. And so 
rather than integrating the pools, they filled in all the pools in the city. And they were just like, yeah, nobody's going to swim. We really don't feel like integration is what we're up for. And, um, and so here I am, and it's this beautiful lawn, and it's got this beautiful tree. And the idea that this tree, the roots of this tree are literally tangled in the workings of this pool that's a testament to this history, this complicated and cruel history in the town in which I lived that goes back to Stonewall Jackson and his packet boat and comes forward to me, who was at that time only the second African-American tenure track professor at this college that was founded in 1891. I was the second African-American tenure track professor, and this is 1998 that I got there. Um, And so then when I start writing poems that are history, but I'm also bringing in the landscape, right? What, What I think about landscape just started to open up and and explode. And it seemed to me that 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 could still be a nature poem, a poem that was in celebration or interrogation of that tree. But it wouldn't be a nature poem that we would see in 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 an anthology that required us to keep nature pristine and to separate human involvement. Um, And I wasn't particularly interested in poems that separated human involvement because never have I understood my ability to move through an environment um, as something that could be entirely pristine and entirely separate from history, culture, my position in society, or, or the ability of other people to have particular positions in society. And so I just became really committed to a poetics that acknowledged the entanglement of human endeavors when we're understanding the, the, our larger environment. Totally. Yeah. I uh, mean, I think for instance, in California, we have all those muster, you know, like one of the beautiful things that happens, particularly along, um, along the corridor near the El Camino Real, right. Are these beautiful kind of stands of wild mustard. Right. And it's so great in spring when they just come up and it's those beautiful fields of yellow. Those wild mustard fields are there essentially when the uh, Spanish conquistadors and missionaries came through and they like enacted the parable from (laughs) Matthew um, of spreading mustard seeds, right? The parable of the sower, they just enacted that. And so those beautiful fields of mustard that I love, that to me are linked with my idea of my childhood and this kind of wild, untouched space, those are, those are directly connected to a legacy of genocide, yeah. <laughs> right? Hmm. And of cultural dominance and appropriation. And so, you know, it's part of our wild, it's part of our wild world, but it's also part of a wild world that's connected with a whole nother people groups, um, subjugation and imperilment. And, and I feel like, I feel like I can write in a way that acknowledges both those things, that I love those fields of wild mustard, but I can't ignore the um, history implicit in the, the presence of that mustard here. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It seems to be a theme, not just in your poetry, but in the, in the poems that you include in the book. Um, the idea that sort of our history in so many ways leaves a scar or a memory or a thumbprint or something like 
actually in the earth itself, like imprinted in the earth. Um, so right. Yeah. So it's really, I think it's really powerful to hear you talk about that those mu- that mustard. You know, the the mustard flowers, like as not just a this thing that the earth somehow produced without us, but that it is a sign of our our being on the earth. Right. Um, I guess I want to I want to ask you about your research process a little bit and how you went about creating it and sort of what your goals were or expectations were going in what surprised you um I I really wanted to point out I love how in in Ravi Howard's introduction to the second cycle the nature be with us cycle that he mentions mm-hmm. the etymology of the word anthology and he says that it's a bouquet a garland a harvest of language and imagery Mm-hmm. It's this gathering of flowers, or this gathering of language. The etymology of the word poem and poetry comes from this idea of something being a, being a made thing and also like a piling up of, of stones, rocks, like a carn, right? And mm-hmm. so, so both of those words, too, have this, have this nod back to something outside the human, but also uh, a a human interference, right? Um, It's not just like a field of flowers. It's a gathering of flowers. It's a gathering that somebody has come and and taken care to adjust in some way. Mm. Uh, The same with the poetry. You know, we talk a lot about poems being organic, you know, like you go to workshops, like, well, is this an organic? No, it's not. Like you're you're sticking your hands in there and Mm. your mind and you're doing something, right? So there's ways in which we can make a poem feel more natural. There's things about symmetry and breath, et cetera, that are more or less natural in the way that an iron lung can be more or less natural, but, um, but still an iron lung, you know, (laughs) it's an artificial tool as opposed to, uh, your natural lung. So anyway, that's an aside. Um, the anthology has a number of origin stories as we all do. Um, all the good books have more than one origin story, right? Um, there's the one in which I say, I've always been writing this way. I've always been thinking this way. And it just, I got lonely looking around and not seeing myself reflected out there in the world. There's the moment when I was kind of writing these poems that I was writing and a friend who was, uh, Laura Gray Street, who actually was a colleague of mine at this little college in Virginia. And she was really deeply connected with ASLI, the Association for the Study of Literature Environment. And she wanted me to come to an early meeting. And I was like, you know, I write about people, right? Like I, I sometimes write about how I miss California, but that's not, I don't, I'm not really a nature poet. And it took me some thinking to think, I, the only reason I'm not a nature poet is because I've bought the, I've bought the definition um, of what the confines of nature poetry can be. And within that definition, the work that I was writing was not there, but couldn't I be part of shifting that construct, right? And changing the way that we limit, uh, this, this, um, paradigm. I think that, you know, black nature was published in 2009 and, um, 2013, 14, brought us um, the really great Arcadia project anthology by G.C. Waldrop. And, um, and then the next year was the Eco Poetry Anthology. And, and I mean, this year brought us Trace 
by Lorette Savoy, uh, essays on thinking about race and Drew Lanham's collection about being a black birder from South Carolina. And I feel like this kind of movement of broadening the scope of how we talk and how we talk about how we write about the natural world and the non-human world and the human and built environments. I think that I was part of a zeitgeist, right? Like I was a part of a shift in a moment when people were like, we can't just talk about pristine wildernesses. Most of us don't live in pristine wildernesses. The security of the planet is dependent on our understanding the interrelationship between human history and human um, commerce and endeavors and, and the non-human, its effects on the world around us. Um, and so I came at a moment and I would, I would sort of take some credit and say that I do think that the presence of black nature was a, was a clarion call, you know, like it was like people, people would come up to me like, I never really thought about black people writing about the natural world, but here you've got over a hundred right here in this book, you know, like surprise, surprise. Um, and so I do think that it was, um, that that was an important intervention, but I think also that at this in the same moment, there has been a great deal of of blossoming um, on this front. Yeah, you you mentioned that when 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 you published the book in two thousand nine, people were like surprised that you know I've never you know that that thing you said I've never heard of never even thought about black people writing nature poetry. Why do you think people were surprised? Yeah, I mean it's I just went and talked to the university in upstate New York last week. And the guy who introduced me was like, until I read about this book, it just never occurred to me that black people would be writing about the natural world. I'm like, dude, it's been out a long time now. (laughs) (laughs) Work work through that (coughs) separately of your intro to me. But um, I think it's because because black um, black Americans have been so radically disenfranchised from from the land. Right. that uh, that the the force of the northern migrations of the um, early to mid 20th century pushed the significant portion of African American populations into urban centers, and so in those urban center spaces, because we think of nature as pristine, right? Because we don't think of nature as parks or bugs or rodents or uh, each other. Um, <laughs> We only think of nature as big rocky mountains and you know <laughs> Yosemite, et cetera. Um, we we forget that when people live in urban centers, they too live in an environment, right? And so we forget that that um, there are ways of thinking about nature that don't have to do with with Yellowstone and giant <laughs> national park spaces like that. So that's one thing is the, the mass urbanization of African-Americans so that my my childhood story becomes an anomaly. Right. Like you don't look at me and think, oh, you grew up in Appalachian Irvine. Like that's not what you expect anyway of um, looking at a when a black person walks in a room like there's a there's a stereotype of what what the parameters of black life in America can be. Um, also. There is the fact that um, in those open spaces, black people have been um, imperiled, either through the legacy of slavery, where um, the, the, the black 
um, body lived in this complicated dichotomy of being both animal and human, right? Mm. Um, and so kind of trying to move away from the animal, right? Trying to like push for centuries now, trying to push against being perceived as an animal. And so why would you have a connection with an animal if you're trying to like push away from centuries of a legacy of that particular limitation? But also, you know, that whole legacy of trees, right? If I walk under a tree, what what are the other memories that um, that I have either through my kind of epigenetic code or like a direct family memory or just stories, right? So trees were sites of lynchings. The um, open spaces were sites of danger, um, of hunts where where the people where the where the prey, where the quarry were human beings, right? And so they're not like I can't necessarily walk out into open space and be like, oh, I feel all safe and secure, hmm. in a way that the that the white folks in the REI commercials get to be. Right. Um, and so. <laughs> um, but then there's just that, too. You know, I just recently the, the National Park System had their 100 year celebration because they just had their 100 year thing this August. And um, and I was looking at one of their pamphlets and like all of the outdoor spaces, their cartoon representations are all white people. The mm. only place they had people of color were in like the D.C. parks and the urban parks. Right. It's like even the National Park like bought into their idea that only white people go to the outdoor spaces and the black people go to the museum mm. in Philly and DC, you know? Mm. So that, I mean, all those reasons complicate people's perceptions. Yeah. Yeah. Because of all of those things, um, black people in America have written a different kind of poetry about nature. Um, it seems like you're saying, um, and I'm wondering sort of if you could describe what what are the features of of that ecopoetics? What is is there an identifiable or distinctly African American ecopoetics, and and what does it look like? I think my answer is going to be yes and no. My answer is going to be yes. There is a distinct channel of poetics that um, African American people and and I think people of color in general have. And that channel is, is what I'm talking about with this sort of interweaving of historical questions and um, questions of space, you know, the ability to claim space, the ability to sort of um, call some land your own land without sort of, oh, and then also there was this point where like the farm that was our family farm got raided and like taken from us for, you know, in whatever way. Um, so that like that sort of, I am going to write in praise of the land, but I'm also going to, to tell some very harrowing stories. Like that, I think is something that is not particular to, but evident in a great deal of African-American and um, poetry and, and poetry of people of color. Um, because I think indigenous Americans will have a similar kind of complication with their communion with the land because of, um, of the intersection of white American history with indigenous American history. I think um, Latino Chicano writers will have, particularly in the West, will have a complicated story because of, of um, 
United States dominance of areas that had once been <laughs> Spanish domains, you know. Um, and so so those kinds of family histories and legacies and things will pop up in the writing of people of color when they're writing about the land and landscape. But I also think that sometimes, you know, black people are just writing like the poetry that was kind of just like everybody else's, but nobody was looking at them. So when I collected the poems for black nature, I had two typical interactions with poets. And one of them were, were interactions wherein people would say, I don't write nature poetry. And then I'd be like, well, so I really wanted that poem that was all about the river and, um, and your family's relationship to the river and the sort of story of that. And they'd be like, oh, I guess. You know? oh. <laughs> I suppose it's a nature poetry, but I really thought it was just about finding Emma Till's body. You know, like, yeah. like and so... And so that like, yeah, like, how can we not like, how can we not think about um, what was it you said, like the stamp on the Chattahoochee River and like the stamp of that trauma on that particular landscape? That's a very human trauma, but it's also this river is um, it's the Tallahatchie River, but um, um, is running is running over over that history and legacy. And, and I, I want both of those. But the other thing that happened was that poets would say, thank you very much. I've been writing nature poetry all this time and nobody was coming to me. And so I think sometimes actually black people are just writing straight up obvious, obvious nature poetry, but they were not being seen hmm. um, because, because of the limits, the limits of perception. Yeah. I have a couple of questions about... Um the idea of the Anthropocene and the idea of a, of a rapidly changing globe in this context and, and how you see, you know, as you said, that uh, at the same time there is and there isn't a, a black ecopoetics in America. But I'm wondering if you if you see that that ecopoetics changing or adapting to the reality of this this world that we're that we're altering so fundamentally across the entire world. Um, and, and what you would imagine that to look like? Well, I mean, I think that this is crucial. I think that if we, if we don't broaden the audience for and the participation in the writing of environmental literature, we are doomed. Because <laughs> there are so many people on this planet. And if we don't involve those people, in the conversation about how to, to stem changes and uh, stem, yeah, I guess the, this catastrophic changes and, um, and heal, then there will be no stemming of catastrophic changes and healing because we have billions of people living in, in communities of color and, who are directly affected, you know, so frequently in the low-lying basin areas in places where um, questions of, of environmental justice are most uh, deeply imperiling um, particular societies and communities. Um, so that, that the, this, this conversation, it's imperative that we broaden um, the network of who's speaking and how they're speaking and who we're writing to and how we're writing to them. Or we're just doomed. Um, every time we hear, I just believe that every time we hear new voices, every time we hear new perspectives, we have new possibilities to move forward and new um, new kinds of alchemy 
um, made possible because of new elements in the in the big magical pot. I like the big magical um, pot metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I, you know, I think that, uh, I think that engagement is part of it, right? When we don't see ourselves in the literature, we don't have to become, we don't have to be involved. Like we don't have to care. We don't have to have a stake. When we do see ourselves in the literature, then we're like, oh, I'm there. And my, my body's there and my, my family is there. And, and I, and it matters that I do something about it. Right. And so that's another reason Like we get black, we get more black people thinking about the environment, then it becomes like, oh, it's, this is not just something that is, that doesn't affect me. This directly affects my life. And then, and then you do more work, right? Yeah. This is our, this is our epic, right? Like we have this moment, the earth's going to be here. It's just going to be here very differently. Right. And so how many, how many other species are we going to take with us? How many other cultures are we going to devastate? Um, and before we just figure this out and hold our leaderships accountable and stem our use of resources or like figure out, you know, just, I don't know. I, I just don't know, but I feel like I'm so happy when I hear people who are under 30 years old, who are as invested in this question as you guys are, because it's your future. Right. And God bless you. <laughs> so much work we got to do. So much. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you so much. All right. Camille. You guys take care. That was producer Jackson Roach in conversation with Professor Camille Dungy. Once again, her 2009 anthology is titled Black Nature, Four Centuries of African-American Nature Poetry. She also has a forthcoming book in prose titled Guidebook to Relative Strangers, Journeys into Race, Motherhood, and History. It'll be out on June 13th. Our show is produced by Jackson Roach, Mike Osborne, Miles Trayer, and me, Leslie Chang. Special thanks also to Tom Hayden and Isha Salian. Our project is supported by Worldview Stanford and Stanford Earth. You can learn more about the podcast online at www.genanthro.com. We're also on Facebook and on Twitter at Gen Anthropocene. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll be back next Tuesday.